Welcome to the symposium of the Lotus Eaters. Today we're joined by Connor. Hello there. Hello. It's nice to have a symposium with you because we haven't done one in a while. Not in the new studio yet. No. And not in the new studio. And I think last symposium we had was the symposium on Hume. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's good to have one mm. again. Okay. And we have more on the pipeline. Uh, good ideas I have about what we should do next. Definitely. I think you will definitely like them. And uh, lots of people are going to like our next symposium as well. So today we're going to have a very special symposium because we're going to talk about a novel. We're going to change our themes a bit. Or actually, no, we're going to talk about themes that we're talking uh, usually, but we are going to talk about a novel, not a philosophical treatise or something. We're going to talk about essentially one of the first, if not the first, dystopian novels called We by uh, Yevgeny Zamyatin. Now, I want to say that I really like this novel and I think that it is very, very, very influential. So Zamyatin was born in 1884 in Russia. He, was, uh, he died in 1937 in Paris. And he was someone who was very much a contrarian, I think. I heard that he was pro-Bolsheviks before the revolution, but against the Bolsheviks after the revolution. So it's a, a, a contrarian by temperament, mm. perhaps. And uh, he wrote this basically before the 1920s, but it was not published in Russian until 1988. So it was published in, I think, the US in 1924. And uh, it wasn't published in the Soviet Union. And it is said that it is one of the first novels that was censored by the Soviet Union. And then after this novel, there was a massive wave of censorship. So Zamyatin was someone who definitely influenced other dystopian writers because he is considered to be the originator of the genre, like uh, Huxley. So Huxley apparently claims that it didn't influence him, but Orwell wrote in a letter saying it did, and I think it probably did. You can see some crossovers with how, particularly how one state governs sexual norms with Brave New World. Yes, mm. and it also influenced Orwell, mm. and we will definitely talk towards the end uh, about whether we is better than 1984. Uh, the, the, we will compare the two novels. Mm. And I'm really looking forward to it because I have an idea of what you're going to say. And I think that we're going to have a very interesting discussion about this. Mm -hmm. So Zamyatin was someone who was um, censored by the Soviet Union, but his book wasn't perceived necessarily as anti-communist. It was perceived as a book that is against any kind of statism that praises conformity to the level of eradication of liberty of complete eradication of liberty. Well, in it, he says the only ability to eradicate criminality is to take freedom away from men. Yes. So, yes. And in 1931, he wrote a letter to Joseph Stalin to be granted permission to leave the Soviet Union. And I think Maxim Gorky was someone who mediated for, for him. And uh, essentially, Stalin allowed him. And I think... In the letter, he told me that he told Stalin, not me, he told Stalin. I often make that mistake as well, Stelios, don't worry. Okay. <laughs> he told Stalin that basically uh, a writer with no audience is basically a dead person. Mm. It's better to be dead than being a writer with a dead audience. So he was uh, exiled 
he, he left basically, he asked to leave the Soviet Union and he died six years afterwards in Paris. Now, We is a very, very, very short novel. Here you can find it in Penguin Classics Edition. It's just 225 pages, but it's really, really, really rich and it has lots of themes. It examines lots of themes that we frequently talk about. And I think we should definitely talk about the themes. We will, when we enter spoiler zone, we will tell you so you don't, uh, we don't spoil the end for you if you want to read it first. But to be fair, I think dystopian fiction is not never about the ending. For me, dystopian fiction is more about the plot. It's more about the world building than anything. And this is why yes. I found We very interesting. Because unlike other dystopic fictions where it is a top-down imposed mindset that is pushed on a dissident population. In We, it talks about paradigms. So the kind of rationalistic, very managerial, very mathematical way of thinking that has been imbued into the citizens of one state as a kind of critical consciousness that very rarely needs policing because they police themselves. Similar to Brave New World, in, the, in Brave New World, they're genetically engineered and kept constantly sedated by Soma and the feelies and all of these carnal pleasures that distract them from cultivating the kind of appetites that allow them to appreciate nature or Shakespeare, comparison that, that's worth mining later. I think this is something that 1984 falls down a little bit, where Big Brother is so oppressive that people get discontented with it. Um, you leave that room for like Winston and Julia to be rebellious enough. It's actually in We that you go into the psychology of D-503, the, the main character, who is battling his own unconscious as a non-mathematical aberration and is contesting with the fact that he can tell that I is leading him astray. He calls it poisoning him because he's drinking and smoking and sleeping with her without the pink ticket. It's a lot more introspective than some of the other ones, and it's because it's contending with those paradigms of sentiment, romance, capital R, romantic notions of, of nature and the imperfect and being in the world versus the mathematical, the technical, the ultimate calculation of all things that makes it a kind of universal, homogenous, utopian state. I picked this novel not only because it is incredibly influential and um, it's essentially the first dystopian novel, I picked it also because it, challenge, it challenges me. Mm. And what, why is that? Because I think that it is essentially depicting a rationalist or a rationalistic dystopia. Mm. And uh, this is something that I myself as a rationalist has have to contend with. So the way I think of it is that an excessive reliance on reason, a reliance on reason that basically does not take into account other aspects of our nature of our nature, like the spontaneous aspect of our nature, and also is combined with the idea that anything that is not rational according to a particular kind of conception of reason should be, let's say, combated against, is bound to lead to tyranny. Mm. So I think that it is imperative for uh, people who at least who are who embrace this idea of reason to try to think of how to prevent that. Interestingly, many people in the English tradition and the Anglo-Saxon tradition of philosophy are very much prone towards empiricism. 
And I really, really, really like this tradition. It is just that I think that it gives us some pro- ultimately some problems of its own. So for instance, it's not a, it, it is not a coincidence or an accident that Hume, who is the arch-empiricist, is led to skepticism or to something like that. And when you're led to skepticism, you're also led to moral skepticism. And this kind of moral skepticism has peculiar pitfalls on its own because you can't be assertive in a moral fashion. It's very difficult to make sense of a morally dogmatic claim. And I make this in the, in the ancient uh, sense of the term, where dogmatism has to do with the affirmation of truth. So I think that essentially we have these two traditions, each of which gives us really, really, really big problems. And the best way for me is to find a way to fuse both because rampant rationalism, or you could say rationalism on steroids, leads to ideology. It leads to tyranny and it leads to huge theories and ideologies that aspire to give top-down explanations of events in the world and very frequently breeds the kind of mentality according to which if theory conflicts with the facts, so worse for the facts. On the other hand, though, there is a problem with empiricism, which is the one that I said before, that very frequently empiricists have trouble accounting for moral knowledge. And I think that if we are to improve society, we need to be able, some, uh, in some cases, to say that, no, this is immoral, this is where we draw the line, and uh, we won't accept this or that practice. What you've said there reminds me of actually a passage, and it echoes the kind of critiques that you hear. This is a podcast which you did with Carl of liberalism as universal acid, of where enlightenment epistemologies, if something cannot be rationally justified or empirically proven by citing a study, never mind the methodological complications, that it has to be jettisoned, even if it's a product of like tradition and practice. And it seems to work, even if we don't quite understand its foundation. There was a quote it's from page 110 in that edition. There are ideas made of clay, and there are ideas sculpted for the ages out of gold or out of precious glass. And to determine what material an idea is made of, all you have to do is let a drop of powerful acid fall on it. Even the ancients knew of one such acid, reductio ad, in, ad infinum. That's what they seem to have called it. But they were afraid of this poison. They preferred to see at least some kind of heaven, however clay, however toy-like, to this blue nothing. But we are grown-ups, thanks to the benefactor, and don't need toys. In the same way, you get the sort of John Lennon's Imagine vision of imagine there's no heaven, imagine there's no countries, imagine all the people holding hands as one. If you just take away these things that we can't rationally justify or prove, even though they seem to work, even though they constitute a kind of cultural texture, then suddenly it gives us space to rationally order everything into that utopia in its stead. Bear in mind that there are many pitfalls along the way. So I, I just found that quite interesting how it slots into that little niche there. I think this is a bit more of an idea of, uh, of a problem for the empiricist hmm. because, uh, and this is where the danger of rationalism comes in because you talked about citing studies hmm. and citing empirical evidence or at least evidence. Rationalists frequently appeal on intuition, yes, and they can literally claim to intuit anything. Now, of course, it's not as simple as that. 
But in principle, the problem with rationalism is that when we rely upon reason as a non-sensory intellectual power, we are led, we are still led to radically different conclusions. So for instance, in, throughout the whole history of rationalism, you have rationalists disagreeing about what they claim to intuit. This is one problem because frequently you could come along as a rationalist, as a rationalist who is defending a society like that, or you, you don't have to be a rationalist. You could adopt this mindset in the name of reason. And you could say, I intuit that, for instance, a sensory happiness or sensory pleasure is the best thing, is the ultimate value. Everyone who disagrees with me is irrational and should be forced to be happy. This is a kind of mindset that leads to tyranny. And we should very much highlight it because very frequently people come along and they say, but it is obvious that my values are the correct values and I am justified in, in forcing them down on you. And if you disagree with me, you're an, are an, an irrational uh, biped. There's, there's a part of the novel that goes into that where he starts talking about the glory of one state and there is a slight deviation in how glorious it is because he said after the uh, the war that lasts a couple of hundred years and before the invention of petroleum bread where people could have abundant food, of course only 0.2% of the population survived. But from the conditions that resulted afterwards, it seemed really rational to construct one state to that 0.2% of the population. Yeah. So the premises on which that rationalistic thought experiment is based in a given place and time can change and then seem self-evident to the new people when it wouldn't have before or after if things decide to, um, if, if conditions change. Yes. I think we will uh, get to this in a bit, mm. but let me also just finish the thought because I don't want to seem as evading the question. Mm. The problem with the empiricist mindset here, or at least with most empirical theories, is that they frequently cannot give ultimate explanation. You could always ask why is something the case? Why is something the case? Why is something the case? Intuition is ration in rationalism is precisely brought to halt the regress of justification. But you could constantly ask, why is that the case? And why do you think you're not dreaming? Why are you not hallucinating when you're claiming that what you uh, claim to, se to have sex sense exper experiences of is true? So the, the problem there is that you end up in a situation where you cannot ultimately give a justification and you're left with suspension of judgment. And this is what leads to a further problem, which I would say is one of the problems of the contemporary world. It's extreme tolerance. Extreme tolerance caused by, the, by a suspension of judgment. So that, that's where I think we have the two problems from rationalism and empiricism and the mindset that they usually cultivate. Um, now, before we start talking a bit about the setting of we, I want us to talk a bit about why we like dystopian fiction. Personally, I love it. What, what, do you, what are your feelings towards it? I like the idea that it becomes a kind of Petri dish where the worst excesses of human nature can be allowed to play out on display. And it feels a bit like, I can't remember, I think Pete attributes this quote to Jung, but I can't remember if it is him. 
of where it's the principle that you allow your ideas to die in fiction so that you don't die in playing them out. And so you can have these extended narrativized thought experiments to communicate to you the principles of how human beings act and interact and how when certain philosophies taken to their logical excess will result in tyranny and conditions anathema to the human experience. And so they're, they're like little bacterial cultures of what we don't want to get infected by. I, I quite yes. enjoy those. I think that they are never out of fashion and they are always important to remember because they show us the dangers of being, let's say, excessively reliant on particular views. Mm. And uh, almost every dystopia play is structured in such a way that it presents itself basically to be the, uh, a blissful land for its subject. I found it quite interesting, though, that the trend of dystopian fiction has taken a turn in the last century or so, because it went from utopian fiction, the kind of stuff that Edward Bellamy wrote with Looking Backward, of where it's basically Zemyatin's we, but defending it, to then the likes of 1984, Brave New World, and Zemyatin's we, of where technology facilitates the human rulers controlling the humans, to now things like Black Mirror, where the enforcement costs are outsourced to the technology in and of itself, and it's slowly rending, rendering human beings obsolete. And I find it interesting how the ratcheting effect of the advancement of technology makes it less so that the human beings are the villains, but more so that the technology itself is some kind of abstract force that is acting against the interests of humanity. Yes. So the trajectory of development of these narratives is quite interesting as technology has improved, or, or rather made us increasingly less necessary in its operation. And this makes it a sobering element. <clears throat> and this makes it a sobering element because very frequently we have uh, many, many, many people who fall in love with the latest technological invention and they think that they are, that their lives are going to be improved ma massively with them. Also, the and uncritical acceptance of any technological development as a kind of positive progress Exactly. So yeah. the idea that things are just getting better all the time, as Tony Blair would have said, rather than the idea that there are trade-offs with every single decision and technology created. And there is a further element, I would say, that it is particular in, as you said, po post-industrial or industrial civilizations due to its reliance on technology and the theme of technology. What I find particularly appealing about fiction is that it conveys some messages in a way that engages the reader as a whole person, as opposed to engaging the reader as a mind. Because what the themes that we are going to discuss, we have discussed them many times, but when they are given in, a, in the form of literature, they have a way of engaging us as whole beings, in a way that we sort of start, begin to have some kind of sentimental affection for the characters, Especially when the, when, it, when the piece of literature is good. If it is not good, we, we don't. And if we like some or dislike other characters. But I think that this is particularly good and engaging about fiction. Because you don't just talk about ideas in the abstract. You're, you're not just saying, well, you need, uh, both to ba you need to balance both chaos and order. You um, it's not just saying that. It's, it gives you a medium in which it shows you what tyrannical order means. Mm. In the narrative, there are um, 
deeper truths, moral truths, that are encoded in replicable behavioral archetypes. And it's often easy to learn this principle when played out to its logical conclusion than just when it's stated abstractly and it's left up to you to test it. Yes. And that's, that's why I think we're ultimately narrative and mythological and metaphysical beings rather than the kind of numerically calculable beings that one state would have us be. Now, I think it is time to talk about the setting of we. We is set on Earth centuries from now, in a society called the One State. Now, the main novel is a series of records by the main character, D-503. And as the name suggests, there is not a name. It's a number. All characters have numbers. So this society is roughly 200 years old. And we are told by the main character that it was that period was preceded by 200 years war between cities and rural communities rural yeah. communities yeah and uh, essentially what we have here is the apotheosis of a city of a metropolitan setting now this setting is really 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 weirdly structured we have buildings that are constructed out of glass Yes, it's the total abolition of privacy. It's the apotheosis of what Carol Hannish would later get to go on to make her maxim of, of feminism and broader wokeism, which is the personal is political. There is no sphere of private life which is not in the interest of the state because the state believes it is capable of calculating the behaviours, the, the habits, the length and dates and times at which all of its citizens should do things to be maximally productive and content. Essentially, it is uh, the, the, I would say also it's the apotheosis of Bentham's Panopticon. Yes. Because it is almost everything is visible from, ev from everywhere. But there's a small difference. That uh, the Bureau of Guardians that is in charge of that society and whose leader is also the benefactor is not, does not live in such a way. The, popula the population doesn't see the guardians. The guardians watch the population. So essentially we have people who have a very rigid, uh, rigidly structured life. They have buildings of glass. They have shades and blinds that they turn only on two hours per day. And these hours are recreation hours and sex hours. Hmm. So at least they have the, the Bureau of Guardians have the courtesy of letting people get it on without everybody watching. Yeah, but they don't know because, again, you yeah. have absolutely no private relationships because you have these pink tickets, so you are, your, your sexual intimacy is rationed, and it's not even intimate because everyone is prescribed more than one partner. And so the only reason that they permit them to have sex <laughs> is so they can get it out of their system in order to be maximally productive to go back to work. This is something that Ivan Illich wrote about in Gender that I discussed with Carl, and that is that when you reorient civilization towards the perspective of generating abundance, which is a product of industrial production, because beforehand, if we're only making things for the immediate subsistence, we couldn't generate surplus goods and then trade them, then what happens is life becomes partitioned into work and shadow work. That is, activities that contribute to market activity, to generating abundance, and activities which constitute 
your maximum recuperation in order to maximally return to the market to be maximally productive. This is the Sigma male grind set idea. In your private life, you're like biohacking, you're getting the ultimate amount of sleep, yeah. you're downloading the wellness app in order to meditate so that you're in, in perfect condition to go straight back into the market. And that's what they've turned sex into. It's not even recreational anymore. It's just another process to clear your mind so you can go back to tinkering with the integral. But at least they don't see it. They don't yes. watch it happening. Yes. The interesting thing actually about the, the privacy angle <clears throat> is, and this connects to the names, and this is also connecting to the, the, the paradigms we were talking about before, the sort of mythological, the romantic, the enchanted versus the mathematically calculated and fully known. That is that in old Celtic folklore and things like that, um, it's in Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea novels as well, names have power, like actual magical power. And to know your own true name or to know the true name of something, like a, like a dragon, is to bend it to your will and cause it to submit. So people safeguard their true names and they take on adopted identities. And so the benefactor is the only one that has a definite name, whereas even though it's a title, whereas everyone else underneath the benefactor has these allotted numbers. So they're depersonalized and they're itemized and they can't own themselves because they don't have their own names. But they have a kind of ideology that I makes them identify themselves with the whole of one state. Yes. Yeah. That is why every one of them feels that they are as powerful as the one state. Yes. It's and the, they, they are essentially cogs in the machine. Well, it's yeah, <clears throat> they're very mechanistic. And it's also the Hegelian idea. I think he wrote it in Introduction to the Philosophy of Right, of where it, the hypothetical, perfectly ethical state can exist, and therefore it is logically sound that freedom exists only in submission to that hypothetically perfectly ethical state. And so if one state is truly the apotheosis of human organization, you would have to be completely irrational to not conform with it because there's no other happier way of living. And of course they identify with that because it's been calculated to be the best, right? I think we should definitely visit this point towards the end yes. because I agree with you. But I want to show exactly how and why. Hmm. And I think it's a very important uh, topic to raise. And thanks for bringing it, it's all right. bringing, it, bringing it up. Now, let us describe the one state a bit more. So we have, as we said, um, a, pan a panoptican society. People don't have names, they have numbers. They're ruled by Bureau, the Bureau of Guardians, who are basically people who love gossip and they watch people doing everything. They're also genetically engineered to be guardians as well. Yes. It's a bit like the, um, the idea of, it's mentioned in Plato's Republic, of where the class of the strongest, they're taken at birth and raised to be the stewards. Yeah. They also have the benefactor who rules everyone. Mm -hmm. And they have basically very rigid structures in their lives. They have the table of hours, which shows to each of them what time it is and what they should be doing. Mm. Every aspect of their lives is rigidly structured. Mm. They only have, as we said before, two hours of recreational activities. And they have these two hours because they haven't calculated yet perfect happiness. Mm. So it's not something that will last according to them. It's something that they're working on it to even take that away from people. And weirdly enough, our main character doesn't want that. He wants that to be taken away from him in the beginning. So let us talk a bit about the characters. 
we have D503. He is the main protagonist. He is a, basically a spacecraft engineer and mathematician. Yes. Who is in charge of the project of building a essentially a space ro rocket called the Integral. Hmm. And uh, this Integral is going to be sent to the universe. It's going to take members from the one state to go and conquer the universe. Yeah, do you mind if I read a little passage here? Because it's yeah. really interesting. So this is, this is the announcement from one state saying that the, the purpose of building the integral and it is it is for you to place the beneficial yoke of reason around the necks of the unknown beings who inhabit other planets still living it may be in the primitive state known as freedom if they will not understand that we are bringing them a mathematically infallible happiness we shall be obliged to force them to be happy yeah now, this is what you were saying earlier and it, it reminds me thematically speaking not only of the idea of Marxist false consciousness being stripped by the, the vanguard class that the Bolsheviks were, that, that Zemyatin was familiar with, but also the Wilson liberal, um, George Bush, make the world safe for democracy connective tissue that Francis Fukuyama positioned, looking at theories of history, again mentioning Hegel in the end of history, that said, actually, our definition of liberal democracy that was victorious at the end of the Cold War, despite some subterfuge efforts that look similar to the Soviet Union as well, is a superior model. And now all we need to do is spread that around the globe. So by believing that you have calculated a superior tabulated morality in the governance system, you annex to yourself the imperial mandate to go out and spread the gospel globally and universally of how one state runs. Um, so I just found that, that quite interesting, that, that that's his model. And the reason the novel exists is him recording the records of how it was built and justifying to these creatures yeah. exactly why they should adopt one state. Exactly. And I really find interesting that terms are pretty much used in the standard sense in this novel. Because, for instance, here, reason represents order. Hmm. It represents structure. It is not equated with freedom, for instance. It is the exact opposite of it, where freedom is held to be spontaneity in in this society. And uh, it shows what we said in the beginning that it is very dangerous when people cultivate the mindset of trying to appeal to reason in order to basically appeal to anything to and say that anyone who disagrees with with them essentially has no right has no rights left that you should basically have the imperial mandate, as you said, to spread, to create the world in the image of what you think. Hmm. This is why wokeness, I think, you could actually understand it as an excess of order. Because even though its constituent elements are this disaggregated, often conflicting coalition of intersectional aggrieved groups, and they act like agents of chaos with the pillaging and the sexual degeneracy and all that, what it's actually aiming at is the total uh, encompassing of the marginal into the mainstream. So it's trying to incorporate unknown quantities that are currently marginalized by a society that doesn't recognize them into this totalistic, holistic, communist utopia style state. Now, the honesty of the people that are pushing this stuff is dubious because it could just be that they're race grifters and they want to enrich themselves and they want to sexually gratify themselves. But the theory that seems to be applied to it genuflects to this. And so, even though they're using chaotic means, 
they are trying to achieve totalistic orderly ends. And that's the danger of the excess of order. It is in saying we need this um, creative destruction of things that are good and wholesome in order to create this totalistic new vision and we must eradicate the old in order to create the, the utopian new. So essentially, I think it is an enlightenment dystopia. Mm. Why? Because the people in that regime are appealing to the ideal of reason. Yes. Now, reason is a different thing to every rationalist. That may sound weird, but it is not. Why? Because it's one thing to talk about reason in the abstract as a non-sensory intellectual power, and quite another thing to talk about reason as a sort of moral code, as a set of moral beliefs that guide action. And essentially anyone can come along and, tell, and say, well, reason is an ideal in our society, so I will claim to intuit what I want to do and say that in, I will do it in the name of reason because reason demands it. It's in your presumed self-interest because I've gone away and pulled exactly. back. Exactly. This is exactly how yeah. Rousseau justified the general will state. I think Rousseau is a bit more sneaky than the one state here because right. Rousseau says that we, he does some intricate conceptual machinery where he says that we will force people to be free. Mm. Whereas here in one state, freedom is supposed to be bad yes. and it's supposed to be different from a reason. Freedom is supposed to be essentially um, is completely antithetical to it. it. That is why they say we shall force you to be happy. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.